The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. This is the word of the Lord. People hide money in strange places. You hear those stories of people finding money in, in drywall, right? They're doing a, a housing reconstruction or something and they, they find money in, a dry, in drywall behind the wall. Sometimes you hear people who hide money in the freezer. Sometimes people put it in coffee cans uh, or in their mattress. That's the, that's the classic one, right? I used to do estate planning, so we would have estates and people would die and you'd find money in the most interesting of places, cash around the house, particularly for older folks. And I remember in one estate, we found it in the barn in an old truck in the air filter. You remember those round air filters? They had put their cash in baggies in the, in the air filter. People hide their treasure in a variety of places. And sometimes you find value in unexpected places. But the important thing is to recognize value when you find it. Our focus this morning is on the parable of the hidden treasure. And our goal is to understand what Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable. And I want to help us to realize that goal, to find out what it is that Jesus wants to teach you and me this morning, all those at home. And the way we'll do that is through a very simple process or outline. First, we'll look at the parable itself. We'll analyze it. We'll look at the characters and the facts and the basic story. What, what's going on here? We'll analyze the parable. Then secondly, we'll ponder the parable. And in that I mean, we'll think about a question or two about something that's raised by the parable. An interesting question for us to consider. And we'll consider it. We'll ponder it. And then finally, we'll get to the point of the parable. What it is exactly that Jesus is trying to teach us. The so what question. What does it mean for us today? That's what we'll do with each of these parables. We'll look at the parable. We'll ponder it. We'll get to the point. So let's begin with the parable itself. Let's look at what we know about it. The facts of it, the story, the characters, etc. And if you look at this parable, as Heidi mentioned, it's Pretty simple, right? One verse in the Scripture. It's what we call a similitude. It's something. It's telling us that something is like something else. And here we're told the kingdom of God is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. Now that tells us a couple of things right off the bat. It tells us that the kingdom of God is valuable, right? Jesus is speaking about it in terms of value and economic value in a sense in the story. The kingdom is like a treasure, it also tells us right away that it is hidden, that the kingdom is not necessarily immediately apparent. It's not easy to find. It's a hidden thing. And we know from the story, as it's laid out for us by Jesus, that someone found that hidden treasure of value, and then, interestingly, they hid it again. And we also know that the one who found it found it on someone else's land, right? They have to go and they buy the field from the presumed owner of the field. And so if you think about the parable, well, we could argue that it has three characters. One is the treasure, one is the finder of that treasure, and then finally we have the owner of the field. 
the seller of the property. Another point, another thing we know is that the one who found the treasure immediately recognized that it was valuable. The person saw value in it. And then finally, one other thing we know is that the person was joyous about finding it and about giving up everything that he had to possess it. Joy is emphasized here. In his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. That's what we know about the parable, the facts, the circumstances, and the story. Now let's do some pondering. Let's think about and the questions that this parable raises, and I just have one that I want to consider a little bit this morning that I find interesting, and perhaps it's come up in your own mind this morning. And that is a question around ethics, the ethics of this parable, and particularly with our finder of the treasure. Do you think this person acted ethically? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. There's a guy who wrote a great book on the parables. His name is Klein Snodgrass. Yes, that's actually his name. <laughs> so throughout the next 15 weeks, you're going to have to hear Snodgrass said a lot, but it's, that's his name. But in his book on the parables, which is an excellent resource, he shares a story about a guy named Roy Wettstein. And Roy was a rock collector. He liked to go to various shows and, and pick out and buy various rocks. And one day he went to a show and he had $10 to spend at the show, $10 in his pocket. And he came upon a table with a, a guy who had all these different rocks, you know, boxes of rocks and all this, and uh, a sign that said that you could have any stone for $15. Roy only had $10. And he picked up this particular potato-sized rock, and he offered the guy the $10 for it, and the vendor took it. He was happy to be haggled with and to, and to get it uh, sold, and, and Roy left that place with tremendous joy because he, had knew, he knew what he had just purchased. He had purchased the largest known star, Sapphire, 1,509 carats. $2.5 million valued, uncut, $10 million value, cut. Now, what do you think about that? Do you think that that is fair? Did Roy do the right thing? Do you think he had an obligation to tell the vendor, the guy who sold it to him, what he really had? Because obviously he didn't know the value of the thing sitting on his table. Do you think he had an ethical obligation to pay a fair price for it? What do you think about that? That's a good question to ponder. It's a good question to ponder with regard to this parable because if you look at it, a, kind of a similar thing happens in the parable, right? Our finder goes out and he finds a treasure on someone else's land. We're not really sure why that person was there in the first place. Maybe they worked there. Maybe they were trespassing. We don't know, but it's clear they were on someone else's land. They find something of great value. The person who found it didn't turn it in, didn't go to the owner. He, he, he hid it again. And then he went and got his money and he purchased the field from the owner of it, assuming he did not reveal the value that was there. He paid a price for that field, but one that probably did not include the value of the treasure. Now, what do you think about that? 
Do you think that that's ethical, that that's fair? Well, some people uh, talk about this parable and they say in the rabbinic law at the time that there were laws and rules about finding treasure. And one of them stated that a person didn't own something unless they lifted the treasure. So if you had a treasure buried on your land and you didn't know it was there and you didn't find it or discover it or lift it out of the ground, it's not yours. And so ethically, it is whoever finds it, finders, keepers kind of thing. And so some people say that this was part of what was there in Jesus' day and what made this person's actions ethical. Robert Sirico, who has a great little book on the economics of the parables, he also believes that this was ethical behavior, but he uses modern economic ideas and principles to argue that. And he gives a couple of illustrations about it. One illustration he gives is of someone who is a land developer, a retail uh, land developer or retailer, and, and the person sees a piece of land and, and recognizes that it's valuable for a certain type of enterprise and goes to the person who owns it, and you know they make an equal exchange. The seller is very happy to sell. They get exactly what they hoped out of it, and, but the retailer just saw that it was more valuable than the one who was selling it. And they come out equal, right? There's a, an arm's length transaction. Nobody was robbed in that. Just one saw more value than the other. Another illustration he gives is of a car connoisseur who goes and sees this quote-unquote junker that somebody's selling for $500. But this car connoisseur who had a lot of knowledge about cars recognized it as a classic car worth $50,000, but he pays $500 for it. And Sirico argues this is not fraud, this is not unethical, it's just an imbalance of knowledge. In essence, he talks about these things happen every day. People exchange goods and services, people buy and sell stuff, and they have different uh, praising of value, and that's what's going on in this parable. I don't know if that's persuasive to you, but it's an interesting thing to think about. And it gets at something, different, uh, something more deep in the parable about its point. This whole idea of what's going on here as far as seeing value and how to value things and, and who was right and who was wrong in this parable. Now, there's a principle of interpreting parables that if something isn't pointed out, it's not important. So in some sense, you know, there's no questioning of ethics in this parable by Jesus. So that's really not the point. But it's interesting to consider what's going on here. So having pondered that point, or sorry, pondered that question, let's now get to the point. Let's dig a little deeper to the final part, the part where really our focus should be is what is the point of this parable? And what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for you and for me? There, um, when I talk about this, and I will do this each and every time, when I get to the point, if you will, I want to be sure that you know in the, in the history of interpreting parables, there has been two extremes in that whole historical process of hermeneutics. One of the extremes in the, in the early medieval church 
was a, the allegorical interpretation, really fanciful kind of interpretations about every little detail things were read into. And later on, as the, more, uh, as the Enlightenment happened, as the modern biblical criticism came about in interpretation, that was uh, rejected and it was replaced with another form of extremism. And that was looking at parables and saying they only have one point. And most uh, interpreters today reject that extreme too. So when I do this, when I say what's the point of the parable, I'm not suggesting that it's the only point or that all parables only have one point. I'm not suggesting it from an exegetical perspective. I'm suggesting it from a homiletical one. Can we boil this down to the essence of what Jesus wants you to know? So what's that point that Jesus wants us to get? So let's think about that. Now, when it comes to that, there are really two schools of thought, two opinions on what the point is, what the main focus of the parable is. One option is it's on the value of the kingdom of God. You can recognize that pretty easy. The focus is on valuing the kingdom, understanding the value of the treasure, learning to properly value the kingdom of God, of your salvation, your relationship with Christ. And then the other most common interpretation is that the real focus is on the cost of discipleship. It's the focus is on what it costs to follow Jesus, the man buying, giving up all he possesses. And that becomes the focus, the value of the kingdom of God, the cost of discipleship. But really, if you take both of them, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, we could argue they're two sides of the same coin. They're, they're related to one another. He who values the kingdom also, also understands the cost of discipleship and vice versa. As, as Klein Snodgrass puts it, no one pays the cost of discipleship without some sense of the value to be gained in doing so. And that's right. I think that's true. So I think you can really get behind it and get down to one point, and I think Snodgrass does get that point, and he says this, the point of the similitude is the behavior of the finder. The behavior of the finder. That's really what this parable is getting at. The behavior of the one who found the treasure. What that person did when they encountered the treasure, how they behaved in response to it. And one of the interesting things about the parable is that the person doesn't really go seeking that treasure, does he? You get the impression from the parable, I think it's right, that he found a treasure. He came upon a treasure, one that he was not seeking. In a certain sense, this is a Calvinistic parable. It's telling the story about how we come to salvation. And the Scripture tells us no one seeks after God. And so here is this one who, by God's grace, came upon something, found something of value, and it's his behavior in response to finding that that matters. The focus is on the behavior of the finder. And what that means, beloved, is that the focus is on you. And the focus is on me. The focus is on every person who has stumbled upon the treasure of Christ, who has been led by the grace of God to be able to hear and see Christ and the kingdom of God and salvation in Him, the focus is on us. You are the ones who have found the treasure buried in the field. And the question is, the question this parable forces us to ask ourselves is, do we realize 
the value of the treasure we have found in Christ. Are we properly appraising that? And the only way to know about that is to look at one's behavior. How does one behave when they find a treasure in a field, when they find the kingdom of God? That's the focus. That's the point. Now you're going to ask me, how do I know? How do I know if my behavior is reflecting that I recognize the value of the kingdom of God? Well, let me try to help you with that in some application this morning. Let me give you three questions. Three questions that you can ask yourself to see whether you are properly valuing the treasure you have found in Christ. And they all go to your behavior. How you respond to the treasure you have in Christ. Three questions. The first one is simply this. Do I live in a manner consistent with the value of the treasure I possess in Christ? Do I live in a manner consistent with the value of the treasure I possess in Christ? In other words, do I live my life in a way that reflects the great riches, the inheritance, the massive wealth I have in Jesus Christ because I have found the treasure of Christ. It's a question of, do you live like a spiritual billionaire? We all know how billionaires live their lives, right? The the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, we hear their stories, but do you recognize the spiritual wealth you have in Christ? And do you live in light of that? Tim Keller has a little uh, illustration he uses to kind of help flesh out this point. He talks about a billionaire riding in New York City and taking a cab. And, you know, the billionaire has, uh, this doesn't really make a lot of sense, but has three $10 bills in his wallet. And he takes a cab fare for $8 and he gets out of the the cab and... um, Gives the, the cabbie, you know, $10, um, covering the fare and a tip, and, and goes on his way. And then later on, he opens his wallet, and he recognizes there's only one $10 bill in there. He had three. He's got one. And so he thinks to himself, well, maybe I, you know, maybe I could have dropped it somewhere, or maybe I gave this cabbie, uh, you know, $20 instead of 10 I gave them the wrong fare. And so what's that person going to do about that? I mean, they're going to go back and you know, shake down the cabbie for 10 bucks. If you're a billionaire, would you care about it at all? <laughs> and then he says, uh, he writes this. This week someone criticized you. Something you bought or invested in turned out to be less valuable than you thought. Something you wanted to happen didn't go the way you wanted it to. These are real losses. But what are you going to do if you're a Christian? Will this setback disrupt your contentment with life? Will you shake your fist at God, toss and turn at night? If so, I submit that it's because you don't know how truly rich you are. If you're that upset about your status with other people, if you're constantly lashing out at people for hurting your feelings, you might call it a lack of self-control or a lack of self-esteem, and it is. But more fundamentally, you have totally lost touch with your identity. As a Christian, you're a spiritual billionaire and you're wringing your hands over $10. Do you see what he's getting at? 
Do you see the point he's trying to make? How we live our lives, the things we care about, the things that bother us or disturb us, the things that we think are loss in our lives. Do you live your life in reality of the spiritual riches you possess, the treasures you possess in Christ? It's one way of knowing whether you recognize the value of the kingdom of God because to you, It becomes the greatest thing you could possibly possess. So greater than any other thing that slights and losses in life pale in comparison to it. Do you, are you living in a manner consistent with the treasure you possess in Christ? Do you recognize that you are a spiritual billionaire? Question number two. Do I treat the treasure I have in Christ like a treasure? Do I treat the treasure I have in Christ like a treasure? You see, what, what, what you do if you possess a treasure is you take care of it, right? If you have something you treasure, you take special care of that. You recognize its value and you take special steps to protect it and care for it, to preserve it, to prosper it. And again, I can give you an illustration. This comes from uh, Tim Chalice. And he he draws this illustration from Antiques Roadshow. You've seen that show perhaps on PBS, you know, all these uh, kind of experts on uh, antiquities and uh, antique dealers and art dealers. And people bring their stuff (laughs) to these people and see if it's worth anything. And he tells this story about one guy who brought an old blanket that he had. It was strewn over his rocking chair in his bedroom. You know, he sat in it every night. It was on the the back of the chair. He didn't think it was really worth anything. And he brought it in to be appraised, and they, they found that it was a special blanket woven in the 1840s. It was turned out to be a blanket of a Navajo chief. And he learned during the episode, during the show, that it was worth three hundred fifty to $500,000. Now, here's this guy. He kind of walks in with this blanket thrown over his shoulder, right? Takes it up, thinks it's not worth anything. He's just found out it's worth half a million. And Chalice uh, wrote, writes this. He says, as the man walked out of the convention center, the blanket he had cavalierly carried in with him, was now cradled carefully in his arms, and he walked out of the building with security guards on either side of him, drove straight to the bank, and placed the blanket in a safe deposit box. What had been junk, a mere mere accent to an old rocking chair, had been instantly transformed into a precious treasure. And then Chalice goes on to talk about how that is like the kingdom of God. When you recognize that you have something of value, you take steps to protect it, to nurture it, to care for it. And the question that comes to us is, are you doing that with the treasure you have in Christ? The treasure you found in Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know that? Well, part of it is what you're doing this morning, right? If you love this treasure, you come and you worship this one who has given it to you. If you love it, you want to see it cared for and nurtured and deepened. If the relationship is important to you, then you feed that relationship. You pray. You read the Scriptures. You take opportunity to grow deeper and richer into your faith. And oddly, in the kingdom of God, when you have the treasure of Christ, one of the things you, the way you show value, that you understand its riches, is by sharing it with other people. 
You're meant to give out of this treasure to others. Christ is a treasure to be shared. And are you doing that? Are you treating this treasure you have in Christ like it is a treasure? Does it matter in your life? Do you guard, protect, preserve, prosper? Do you find joy in that relationship so much so that you want to spend time with the Lord with the treasure that you possess? That's another question. Do I treat the treasure I have in Christ like a treasure? And then thirdly and finally this morning, the last behavioral question about whether we recognize the value of the kingdom of God. And that third question is, what did finding this treasure cost me? What did finding this treasure cost me? And I would put it in the present tense. What is it costing me now? What is this treasure costing me? Because you see, you tend to take care of something. You tend to value something. You tend to care for and nurture and preserve and protect something that costs you something. This is the basic principle of private property versus rental property, right? You treat them differently because you own it, you possess it, you paid something for it, and the more it costs you, the more you value it. And that's the question we're trying to get at. What did finding this treasure cost me? What is it costing you to follow Christ, to preserve and live in light of this treasure? This past week, I read an article by uh, Christian McNamara. He's a researcher at the Yale School of Management, and he wrote an article for the Front Porch Republic entitled Virtue Signaling and Cheap Grace. Virtue Signaling and Cheap Grace. And the article is about his criticism of uh, USC, and um, maybe you've read this in the news, they're kind of got uh, made news headlines because they're going through this whole language inclusivity program where they're eliminating terms that are allowed to be used by the university and its students and faculty and, you know, around trying to eliminate people uh, being hurt by those words or experiencing trauma because of those words. And some of that makes sense and some of it seems rather ridiculous. And McNamara points out one particular area where he thinks it seems rather ridiculous, and that was the elimination of using the word field or field of work or field of study in the sense in the area of the academic community because it could possibly harm someone or traumatize someone by that mere reference to a field. And those who had been slaves, those who had been field laborers or whatever, it was meant let's not use that anymore. And McNamara points out in the article like how ridiculous that is, and I would probably agree with that, but he's not really making an anti-woke rant. He's trying to get at something deeper because what he points out in the article is all of the scandals that had happened at USC, all the things that they had done as an institution that really, truly did harm people in massive ways. You may not be familiar with all of those things. He lists them in the article. I won't read them all to you. But as was summarized by Jason McGann in Los Angeles Magazine, he said this about USC, that it had a two-year run of scandal that is unprecedented in the annals of American higher education. And what McNamara's point is, instead of addressing these problems that were toxic within the university that are causing you know, huge problems and are 
difficult to solve, they have focused instead on something we might call as virtue signaling. And his point is simply this, that that really cost them nothing. That it cost them nothing, right? That's the thing about virtue signaling that is wrong. It costs you nothing. And he brings up Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship and the distinction between costly grace and cheap grace. And we're supposed to value the kingdom of God. We're supposed to value the grace of Christ. We're supposed to value the blood of Christ, that it is the most priceless and precious thing to us. And what are we doing? Are we valuing it properly? Is it costly or it's, is it cheap? And McNamara writes in this article, again, going reflecting on, he, he writes this about USC. He says, changing the phrase fieldwork to practicum is, without more comprehensive action, a perfect illustration of cheap grace. It costs USC nothing more than some online eye-rolling to do. Whereas it costs something to shut down a cash cow's master program that is plunging students into debt they can't service. It costs something to decline to sell admission slots to the highest bidder. It costs something not to look the other way when they are warning signs that campus leaders known for their fundraising prowess are up to no good. It costs something to do the right by the surrounding neighborhood. It costs something to provide adjunct faculty with a livable income, benefits, and job security. But these are all things that an institution truly committed to justice in its daily vocation would do, not just despite the cost, but because of it. And then he concludes, writing of the grace received by Martin Luther, Bonhoeffer said this, it was grace because it cost so much, and it cost so much because it was grace. You see the point he's trying to make. That's the problem with virtue signaling. It's easy, it makes you look good, it costs you nothing, and it does nothing. And the question for us this morning is, is our faith something more than mere spiritual virtue signaling? When you say that I believe in Jesus Christ and I want to follow Jesus Christ, does it cost you something? Or is it just a slogan? Is it just a turn of a phrase? What is it costing you? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Is it cheap grace or costly grace? And the way we can tell is what we're paying for the field. Are we paying all we have for that treasure? What is it costing you to follow Christ? Is it showing up on Sunday and $10 in the collection plate? Is it even that much in your life? What is it costing you to follow Christ? You see, this parable is trying to get you to do the math in your life, trying to get you to engage in a spiritual audit of your faith, whether you have realized the value of the treasure you have found in Christ. And one of the ways you know is by looking at what it has cost you, what it is costing you. Let me close with this. Go back to that whole discussion I had about the ethics of the parable the story of the guy who bought the sapphire for $10 from the rock dealer. The guy that bought the $50,000 antique car for $500. The guy selling the junker. I asked you during that time to think about the ethics of that and, and who you might who you feel sympathetic towards in that. The idea you know, is to feel bad for the one who sold. Who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? 
Well, I really think that Jesus wants us to see it the other way around, right? We have this, maybe this tendency to think, well, the seller got ripped off. That the seller is kind of a sympathetic figure. But Jesus in this parable doesn't want us to see it that way. He wants us to see the buyer as the wise one. That the seller is unsympathetic. Why? Because the point is that rec- is recognizing the value of what you possess. And the buyer recognized the value. And the seller did not. And that's the point. That's the most important thing. Is recognizing the value of what you have found in Christ. To recognize that Christ is our treasure. And if you recognize the treasure of Christ, if you recognize that in Him is hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, if you recognize what you truly possess in Christ, you will give up everything to attain it. To possess Christ. And remember, beloved, this story, this parable is not a parable about loss. It's about gain. He gave up all he possessed, but he got so much more. That's why he's joyous. He was filled with joy, not buyer's remorse. He wasn't counting the dollars in the sense that did I pay a fair price. It was so far more priceless to possess this treasure. He recognized the value of what he had found in Christ. Do you? Do you? One sees a $10 rock, another a $10 million sapphire. One sees a fool's religion, another sees the treasures of Christ. What do you see? What do you see? What do you value? Do you recognize the value of the treasure you have found in Jesus Christ? Let's pray.